want the cup. We want the cup. We want the cup. We want the cup. Welcome to Brotherly Pod. It is Thursday, September 17th, 2020. And uh, it's episode 199 of the Brotherly Pod franchise while we're at it. So closing in on 200 there. Expect a little something later in the week when we hit 200. But in the meantime, we're back. Uh, Anthony's back. How are you doing, Anthony? Not too bad, man. What about you? Doing, uh, doing pretty good here. And uh, we continue around the NHL with our guests. This time, Nick Alberga of Sportsnet 590. The fan is joining us. Nick, how are you doing? I'm fantastic, guys. What's going on with you guys? I can't believe we're, what, like a week and a half away, a week away from handing out the Stanley Cup when we didn't think it was possible to do it in a bubble. So uh, I'm feeling good about life right now. Yeah, it's uh, looking to be a good final here, pretty much whoever makes uh, to face the Dallas Stars. But uh, you're obviously covering the Leafs, so the most breaking news is Manny Malhotra coming over from Vancouver to take an assistant coaching job. He's going to replace Paul McFarland. Any more details on that yet? Yeah, so pretty much that's what we're hearing. Um, essentially, I think Leafs Nation uh, was sort of feeling like they wanted Bruce Boudreau uh, in that fit. I, I just didn't think that made sense for a variety of reasons, um, you know, for you know, among them being the fact that if you have Boudreaux in there, then certainly Sheldon Keefe is looking over his shoulder. So from the sounds of things, um, you know, they met with, you know, they went with somebody in Manny Malhotra who deserved to take the next step in his career. Not that he was getting it um, in Vancouver, but look for him to, you know, pay, a, you know, do great things with, with some of the younger players on this team, uh, especially up the middle. Uh, the career he had in the faceoff circle, I think, should be integral because uh, clearly, you know, it's one thing to be an analytics team. It's another thing to be good at face-offs. And so uh, I would expect the Maple Leafs to be uh, much better in the face-off circle, much better up the middle next year in terms of, of the way they identify and strategize when it comes to centers and, and going up the ice. So uh, I think all in all, a win-win here uh, for the Maple Leafs to bring in Manny Malhotra. So they make this coaching change. Obviously, they made the coaching change in November to replace Mike Babcock with Sheldon Keefe. Last summer, DJ Smith bolts for Ottawa. They replace him with Dave Haxtell. Pretty big overhaul as a whole behind the bench. What has been the biggest change from the coaching staff from, let's say, the end of the 2019 playoffs until now? Well, obviously, it's been uh, you know the head coach. Um, certainly, I think... Mike Babcock's stubborn ideology was just not conducive to who they have presently on this roster. Not to say that Sheldon Keefe is the perfect addition, right? Um, I think you certainly see it in the style, the tempo, uh, the way they want to play. The puck possession is massive. It was for Mike Babcock, too, but it's a different type of game. Uh, Sheldon Keefe's a bit more progressive. Uh, That's probably the biggest difference I've noticed uh, from Mike Babcock to Sheldon Keefe is how much this team wants to hold on to the puck. Um, 
you know, I watch a lot of games uh, across the league. There is no team like the Maple Leafs when it comes to, hey, we need to make a line change, but we're going to hold the puck so our forward's going to circle back in our own end and wait till we make that line change four to five, and then he'll get off, pass the puck to somebody else. So uh, the ideology is that they want the puck all the time. Who knows if it works? Because I think, again, we're seeing in these Stanley Cup playoffs, guys, you need that element of veteran leadership. You need some bets on your roster. We're seeing it from Dallas, certainly from the Islanders, and, and definitely from the Tampa Bay Lightning. So um, it's not like Toronto's figured anything out just yet, but uh, certainly there is a, a, a big-time difference behind the bench, uh, especially, I think, where it matters most when it comes to coaching, and that's the head coach. But uh, I guess I'll give Sheldon Keefe a pass for another season here. While we're on the topic of coaches being a flyers podcast i gotta know what's your opinion on dave haxtell uh i like i wasn't a big fan of dave haxtell in philadelphia um i understand you know that's why like and it's such an interesting league right because guys get second third fourth fifth sixth chances and they don't succeed the time before but they continue to get chances um i know it's a different sort of ball game when you're, you're not the head coach so you can sort of zone in on what you're uh, attention to detail is and and what you can do and you know from from my account Dave Haxtell is is sort of a defensive minded guy um and that's what he stresses with this Maple Leafs team but uh you know it is what it is I don't put as much stock into assistant coaches as I do head coaches clearly um but you're right um because my views on Dave Haxtell in Philadelphia were, were not good I'll be honest and now he's in Toronto and uh We'll see if this works out, but uh, you, you really can notice, I think, from an eye test when, when you're, you're watching a hockey game, that's for sure. At the end of the day, that big coaching change last November, do you think it came from Kyle Dubas or Brendan Shanahan? Because obviously Brendan Shanahan was the first face to meet the media, I believe, in Arizona when the news came out. Where do you think the buck eventually stopped with the decision to finally move on from Mike Babcock? Probably somewhere in between. Uh, certainly, I think you heard from the sentiments following the previous season where they again lost to the Boston Bruins in the seventh game of the first round. Just what Mike Babcock said, what management said, it just didn't line up. Uh, quite frankly, I was a little stunned. They should have probably did it last offseason and gone in fresh to this season because they really put themselves up against it in the first couple months of the season to where, where they were in the standings. And, and credit to Sheldon Keefe, he sort of uh, gave them that jolt, that bolt that this team needed to eventually, and I know the, the bubble format, the playoffs were a bit different. Toronto was still hanging on to a playoff spot by three points when play stopped um, in early March. Uh, but I, I think somewhere in between, um, I think it was inevitable change was going to be made in terms of Mike Babcock. It just wasn't working out. And that was probably, you know, clearly a Brennan Shanahan guy as opposed to Kyle Dubas, uh, young, fresh face, uh, has had his, his guy earmarked for a long, long time in Sheldon Keefe. And I feel like the writing was on the wall. Hell, I'm, I'm even sure Mike Babcock knew that his successor, whether he liked it or not, was going to be Sheldon Keefe. So I was a little stunned the, the move wasn't made sooner, but uh, I would say probably in between. I think they just both agree that, hey, I made you the general manager for a reason. I want you to have your guy, and, and and that's it. One of the other moves that the Leafs have made thus far in the postseason, the, the offseason, I should say, was the Kasperi Kapanen trade, essentially for a first-round pick, a slew of other players involved. That gives them a first-round pick, which will be 15th. They already lost theirs after they traded Marlowe to Carolina. Was that trade made specifically for a first-round pick to hop back in to the 2020 draft this year? 
Yeah, I definitely think so. And certainly I joked about it when the trade was made. Uh, first off, I love Jim Rutherford, the GM of the Pittsburgh Penguins, because he continues to make the NHL trade market relevant sometimes when it, <laughs> it shouldn't be or it isn't, you know, especially right now, um, you know, in the economic times and the whole pandemic, uh, he continues to make trades. It's it's crazy. But I do feel like it, it was a move made because Toronto got what they were looking for, and that's why they didn't wait around to see some other offers. Uh, I'm sure your your aforementioned Flyers, um, you know, the, you know the relatability with his father. Uh, I'm for sure thinking they would have been involved in conversations. Uh, you know, Colorado, like there's there's a lot of teams out there who were still playing at the time who I think would have loved to have Kasperi captain. But Toronto sort of set a mark of what they were interested in, what they wanted to get into the first round. Uh, of the upcoming NHL draft. And so um, Pittsburgh offered it up. Uh, quite honestly, they'll never admit it either side. But I think Toronto was uh, um, quite intrigued and fascinated and said, hey, we better act quickly here because we got what we're looking for. And and that's why the deal was consummated so quickly because um, I think the, in a perfect world, they would have wait, waited to see what unfolded over the next little while before deciding to make a trade like that. But uh, I think the deal was too good to pass up on, and that's why they did it. What happened with Kasperi Kapanen? Because it seemed over the last year or so he really fell out of favor with, well, I guess it ended up being Sheldon Keefe. But was it just a case of him being buried down the right wing behind Marner and Nylander? I know he got a look on the left wing earlier in the season, I believe, when Zach Hyman was hurt with Matthews and or Tavares. So when they traded for him in 2015, he was like the centerpiece of that Phil Kessel trade coming over from Pittsburgh originally. What ended up happening and what led to him ultimately being traded? Well, honestly, I think it's a it's a perfect you know scope of, of maybe a player that needs a new surrounding and a new team. And granted, I get it. He was initially drafted by Pittsburgh, as you referenced. But um, I don't want to say he's one-dimensional, but he's a guy who is probably better suited for the bottom six. I know Jim Rutherford has come out and said he's going to play in the top six, and people are like, oh, they're going nuts over the fact that he could play with uh, with Malkin or Crosby up the middle. But last time I checked, he had ample opportunity, as you mentioned, in Toronto to play with Austin Matthews, to play with John Tavares, to play with Mitch Marner, and it just never worked out. Um, I think when you look at Kasperi Kapanen's game, um, he's got a lot of speed. Uh, I think he's really successful and potent when it comes to the penalty kill. He scored a lot of big-time goals on the PK with his speed and his dash. But, um, you know, he's got a decent shot. Um, I, I just don't look at him as a finisher or a playmaker. Certainly not a playmaker. I think if you watch a lot of Kasperi Kapanen, he doesn't pass a lot when he should pass. And when he does pass, it's moments he shouldn't pass the puck. So, uh, maybe it's coaching. Uh, you know, again, it's maybe somebody who's jolted from going to a new organization. Maybe Mike Sullivan finally cracks Kasperi Kapanen. He has an epiphany and and he can be that guy they're looking for in the top six in Pittsburgh. But uh, um, I think he was at his end in Toronto, not to mention the cap constraints. They had to deal him here. It was going to be him. Still could potentially be Andres Janssen. Um, ditto for Alex Kerfoot. Um, but they had to deal Kasperi Kapanen. I think they found a good fit, good partner. In Pittsburgh, and uh, I, I just, you know, to answer the question of what happened, I, I just think um, it, it was maybe a guy who was long to be a third-line forward in the league. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I just don't know if he has the finishing ability to be in the top six and sort of the IQ to be in the top six, and that's no slight on him. Uh, again, really good PK guy, uh, really good defensively, in my opinion at least, and uh, his, his speed should be an asset for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He should fit in that lineup nicely. I just don't know if it's going to be in the top six there. 
One of the more interesting names I found on the TSN Top 20 trade bait list was goalie Freddie Anderson. What are the Leafs trying to accomplish dangling him out there? Are they looking for an upgraded goalie, or are they looking for another position to fill and fill the starting role somewhere else? Well, the most important thing to grab from this is that Frederick Anderson is one year away from UFA status. And as we know now in the flat cap world for the next couple of seasons, I, you know, the ask right now, it sounds like is is around $7 million per season on a, on a contract extension for starters. Um, the Maple Leafs can't do that. Um, certainly when you're paying their big boys, the big four, you know, close uh, in excess to $40 million, you just can't do that. Um, I think in a perfect world, they're looking to pay a goalie five, five and a half, which they were already on this contract for Frederick Anderson. And then number two, certainly um, the elephant in the room that he seems to struggle and succumb to pressure in the Stanley Cup playoffs when it matters most. Uh, I don't think, you know, people were pinning this first round loss or this qualifying loss, uh, qualifying round loss to Columbus on Frederick Anderson. But the last time I checked for a team who prides itself on being an offensive juggernaut, when you're shut out twice in five games in a series, you don't deserve to win. So you can blame your goaltender all you want. Yeah, he, he let a couple stinkers in, but I just don't think it was Freddie Anderson's fault. From what I'm hearing, um, I think both sides are willing to move on here. The Maple Leafs um, are not willing to go down the road here with Frederick Anderson and say, hey, he's going to be our guy in the future. So I think what Toronto is trying to do right now is assess the market find value and potentially try to deal Freddie Anderson. But the, the problem they're going to run into is that you need a replacement for Frederick Anderson. Cause this is not a team as we know that is saying, Hey, we're going to rebrand, we're going to retool and we don't care about winning. Like they still want to win, still consider themselves one of the upper echelon teams and want to win the Stanley cup right away. So I think it's going to be hard to do, but I think pretty much that's what you're looking at is the fact that um, they, they do not intend in re-signing him. They don't want him to get to market next summer without finding um, a couple assets for him, at least, if that makes sense. Well, if there's a summer to do it, it definitely is this summer or off season, rather, as we're in this COVID <laughs> world with all these goalies, you know, pretty much poised to move around. Obviously, a name being tied to the Leafs has been Matt Murray, but are there any other potential fits in net that you could see? See, they, and I'm sure this is the problem they're running into right now, because no doubt, I think in a perfect world, they would have loved to make a move like this already. Um, I think to an extent, Marc-Andre Fleury with the Vegas Golden Knights, um, I think Vegas would have to eat money in that deal. Um, very similar to what Toronto did when it came to the Tyson Berry deal, where Colorado ate a majority of the Berry contract. Um, I-, I could see Fleury working. I- I'm not crazy about Matt Murray, to be quite honest. Uh, certainly had a really hot start to his career, but the last couple of years, he he seems to taper off. He gets hurt a lot, and that's that's the biggest thing for me when it comes to goaltending. I think it's a very volatile position, but I want stability. I want a guy I know I can count on. Um, and granted, I get it. There are so many goalies around this league who are really good goalies. They get hurt a lot. Ben Bishop's another prime example with the Dallas Stars. He always seems to be hurt. So I think that's what I'm in search from. Um, if I'm a Maple Leafs perspective, is is a guy who's stable and I know can run out there a lot. You know, Similar to a number one hurler in, in Major League Baseball, you want that guy who's going to be there all the time. Um, you know, logical names, uh, certainly again, Mark Andre Fleury comes to mind. Um, I'm not crazy at Matt Murray. I think Braden Holpe would make a lot of sense. I don't know what his market's going to develop like, um, somebody who's been there before, but again, uh, th- that's the big intangible you're trying to find right now. If you're Kyle Dubas, not only do you want to trade your number one in Freddie Anderson, but you, you want to find a guy who's at least as good as Frederick Anderson. Right. And, and that's, I think certainly when you look at the market right now, 
there's a lot of good goalies, don't get me wrong, but there's probably guys, I think, um, in, in terms of perception and how they're viewed, are, are lesser-known entities than, uh, you know, say, um, a Frederick Anderson. Another name to throw out there is Jacob Markstrom, uh, right? Um, but who knows how much he wants, right? If that market really builds up, then you're getting to the seven mil territory, and that's where you don't want to go. So that's why it's a slippery slope right now for the Maple Leafs, and I think the goaltending market in general, guys, because... Um, you know, it's like musical chairs. You don't, you don't want to be left out in the cold, especially if you're the Maple Leafs. And, you know, for, hypothetically, for example, they, they trade Freddie Anderson. Now, down the road, you say, okay, we're going to get our guy in free agency, and it doesn't come to fruition. Next thing you know, you're stuck with Jack Campbell and, you know, p- potentially a 1B option. So you've, you've probably, you know, lessened your abilities uh, in between the pipes, and it's not going to work out. So it's, it's tough. It would be very, very difficult to do this job right now, that's for sure. Obviously, the Leafs are going to be one of the teams hit hardest by the flat cap. Seems like they may lose quite a few players this year. One of those being Tyson Berry. Are they really losing anything substantial on the blue line with Berry gone? Look, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to rip on Tyson Berry. Just it didn't work out, right? Uh, I think both parties know that. Uh, they've known that for quite some time, and they're going to move on. Um, I think Tyson Berry uh, is a nice reclamation project for somebody, ala Kevin Shattenkirk this season. What he's doing for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Heck, I could even see a good fit there with uh, the ties to Lenberry in Tampa that Tyson Berry maybe is the Kevin Shattenkirk this year, next year for the Tampa Bay Lightning. But, I, I you know, I, I think both sides have been pretty professional. Again, I think they've both realized that it just hasn't worked out. And uh, hopefully t- for Tyson Berry, his next spot, um, he advances into more of the type of player that he wants to be because uh, the last couple of years, especially this one in Toronto, he hasn't looked like the guy earlier on in his career who was running a power play in Colorado. So um, I don't know if they're losing anybody. I think they're just both parties are, are, are happy and willing to move on here. Well, it was just weird because when they brought in Tyson Berry and Cody Cece last summer, it just seemed like Dubas brought in the wrong types of players. And comparing it to Philadelphia, I feel as though the two defensemen that they brought in in Matt Niskanen and Justin Braun would have been ideal fits on the Toronto blue line in place of Cece and Barry. Do you foresee Dubas maybe going out and getting to stay-at-home veteran-type defensemen? I know they've had ties to Alex Pietrangelo for the obvious hometown reasons, but do you see Dubas maybe looking at trying to get some defenders like that? Yeah, that's definitely the wild-card question, and I think Kyle Dubas is a wild-card considering the moves he made last summer, right, as you just mentioned. Um, I, I think Justin Braun is certainly on the radar of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think he makes a lot of sense. As you know, he's a free agent. Um, I think he would make a lot of sense. You're right with Niskanen. I thought the same thing when Philadelphia picked him up. And I thought, that again, that was a really good deal with Washington that they made there. It was a really good fit. And certainly, I think when you look at the moves last summer, you're right. Uh, because Tyson Berry, again, was another guy who was known for his offensive prowess. He, was, he has never been known for um, his abilities to play defense. We'll say that. Um, I know for sure and for certain the Maple Leafs were going to sniff around on Joel Edmondson. That's no longer the case. Resigns or signs, I should say, with the Montreal Canadiens after his rights were traded from Carolina uh, to the Habs. Um, so definitely, you know, I can see them look around. I think Radko Gudis is going to come up in conversation. Chris Tanev, um, you know, tr- maybe Travis Hamannick. I don't know if he wants to stay out west or not. Um, but names like that, uh, I think they you know, they would be smart to at least approach and think about. Again, who knows, uh, because Toronto is very analytics heavy. 
They want to, they want puck movers. They don't necessarily love guys who are stay at home defensemen. So that's the intriguing question for me. Cause at some point in time, you got to realize that maybe, Hey, my formula isn't working. Maybe we should try something else. Right. Uh, he mentioned Alex Petrangelo. I mean, cap wise without making a substantial move elsewhere in the lineup, there's pretty much no way they could do it. Do you think they would take a risk if it meant dealing one of their high, higher paid forwards, if it meant that they can sign Alex Petrangelo? Well, they've been steadfast and adamant um, pretty much since they put the big four together that those guys aren't going anywhere. And that includes William Nylander. And they doubled down. And as we've come to know in Kyle Dubas' short time, uh, you know, the PR and marketing is an important aspect of his brand and his game. So I do believe him when he says he's not trading William Nylander. I guess you never say never, but I don't think he wants to look bad, right? Um, especially in this spot. Um, but you're right. Uh, all, all this conversation about Alex Petrangelo makes no sense to me, especially if reports are coming out that the Blues are offering, uh, you know, seven and a half or more. Why would he take less? Um, you know, I understand it's his hometown team, but at the end of the day, money is important to these guys. Whether they admit it or not, money is important. So if you're getting into the eight mil territory with Alex Petrangelo, especially on a team that's paying you know, Austin Matthews over 11.6, 11 to John Tavares, uh, just under 11 for Mitch Marner, just under 7 for Willie Nylander. Then you add the fact that you've got to extend Morgan Riley if you want to keep him, and I think they do want to keep him um, coming up as soon as next offseason. Um, so I don't know, you know, I understand why because of, you know, the criteria he fills and how much they need a guy like Alex Petrangelo. In a perfect world, guys, with no cap, Petrangelo's your number one look. Like, that's the guy you're going after, but... I think they would have to make a lot change when it comes to this construction of this roster, and the cap doesn't benefit them either. Um, and their bottom six would be suffering big time if they found a way to get Alex Petrangelo. So I, I've never thought that made sense from the beginning, quite frankly. You just brought up the bottom six and the top and the big four that pretty much insulate that top six. Over the past few years, the bottom half of the lineup up front has taken hits. Nazem Kadri, most recently Kasperi Kapanen, Patrick Marlowe, Leo Komarov. All those types of guys have gone out the door. And I think in the playoffs, we saw that lack of depth scoring. You know, Alex Kerfoot was by and large a disappointment. Freddie Gauthier, maybe a solid bottom line center, but doesn't give you a lot offensively. We saw some promise from Nick Robertson, but what do you see in the future of that bottom six? Will Dubas be able to financially upgrade it, or are they just going to have to rely on what they already have and maybe a Nick Robertson taking another step forward? Yeah, that's pretty much what we're looking at, guys. It's just an interchangeable uh, bottom six, if you will, of, of new player after new player, and I think certainly a fixture will be Nick Robertson. We saw him in a couple games here against Columbus. I think looks ready to go and be a, a full-time National Hockey League, or at least to start next season with the uh, off-season training that he'll go through. I think they were pleasantly surprised with uh, Ilya Mikheyev in his first season, so I can see him re-upping on a new deal. Um, but those are pretty much your your seven guys. You know, we'll include Hyman, Matthews, Marner, Mikheyev, Tavares, Nylander. Um, you know, when you look at Kerfoot and Janssen, I don't know if they're going to be with this team coming up next season. We'll see. Um, we'll see what they can put together in terms of an offseason game plan. But I think you got to take the approach of Tampa. You, your drafting's got to be that much better. And that's why uh, they have to be ecstatic about the progression of a Nick Robertson, that they can pay him on an ELC and he can produce like a guy who can play in your top nine, at least top six eventually. You need like that guys like that to flourish. I, I think... 
you know, that's the one thing nobody talks about when you look at Tampa is how many guys they brought up the pipeline from Nikita Kucherov uh, to Anthony Sorelli to Mitchell Stevens to Cedric Paquette. Like there's been guy after guy who's started on the fourth line, has evolved into a player who is so versatile, can play on your first line, can play on your fourth line. And certainly a team in a cap crunch like the Maple Leafs, you need players like that. So I think there's even more pressure internally from uh, a draft landscape to keep developing guys like Nick Robertson because you need guys like this and uh, you know the future in the next three, four, five years who can pay you know you can pay cheap and play in your bottom six. So again, that that's the risk they ran into, and again, it didn't help with COVID hitting the fact that it's going to be a flat cap and they really can't adapt to that. So you're going to see new guy after new guy come in there in the bottom six. Talking about the pipeline, is there anybody left in their system, be it the AHL or maybe still the junior level, that is a notable uh, notable prospect for them? Well, I mean, I think I would still consider Nick Robertson a prospect. I would consider Rasmus Sandin a prospect. Uh, certainly guys who are knocking on the door of, of, of spots in this league. Um, certainly, I think those two guys, um, you look at a guy like Semyon Duragachinsev, who should be in the league in the next couple of years, um, I think the M.O., um, certainly when you look at Kyle Dubas, is, uh, he likes smallish type forwards. Uh, I saw a graphic uh, on a network yesterday that uh, illustrated the same thing, that he loves taking wingers. And, and it seems very, very smart. Um, sort of ironic, the fact that, again, he's taking forwards when Toronto needs defensemen. Um, but they're trying their best, right? Um, I think, you know, they, they have one eye... Um, on the mind that yeah we're need to we're we're, need, we're needing to have guys in the bottom six who don't make a lot of money so that's why you're bound to hit on a couple guys and they bound uh, you know they hit on a Nick Robertson in the second round so uh, you know I, I think from from the prospects point of view there are some guys coming even Joseph Wall a goalie who I still think is a couple years away um, so all in all I think you know they they've done a pretty decent job of, of stockpiling the last couple of years they don't have the worst prospect base in the league we'll say. In 2018, they make the switch to go from Lou Lamorello to Kyle Dubas. And Kyle Dubas took over a team that went seven games the distance against the Boston Bruins in the first round. They failed to get past that point since. It's felt kind of like a stagnant process under Dubas. Do you think this team would have looked at all different or had different results under Lou Lamorello if they stuck with him? And how... Today, would you grade Dubis's tenure? Well, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can start there, right? Because uh, certainly, I think you look at the New York Islanders as we speak right now, still in the conference final against Tampa Bay Lightning, and again, Lou Lamorello has worked his magic with that organization. That said, um, that team last time I checked does not have players, you know, as good as as the Big Four. You know, Barzal, you can intertwine into that conversation for sure. But uh, I think in in this landscape of the NHL where young players are paid so quickly, I, I just don't know how much bargaining power you have. Um, and a lot of people will complain that, hey, Kyle Dubas lost out against Austin Matthews, walking him to free agency. Mitch Marner, the same thing. Um, you know, it's funny because a player like John Tavares becomes available. How do you not engage in that conversation, right? Um, it's funny to think that it was sort of a detriment to the tenure of a Kyle Dubas to have John Tavares available and to sign John Tavares because it hurt this team elsewhere. But again, if you're in his boots, how, how do you not, how do you not engage and say, Hey, like, we don't want you. Like you don't tell John Tavares, we're not interested and we don't want you. Right. Um, 
you know, for the Nylander point of view, I think that contract actually is okay in terms of what he gets paid. And he had a much better season this year than he did last year. Um, but in terms of a grade, I, I think it's, it's incomplete at this point in time. It's certainly been satisfactory at best. Uh, I would maybe say, you know, a C plus at this point in time, because he has done some good things as well. But this is a pivotal offseason, guys, especially coming off another disappointing finish uh, to lose to the Columbus Blue Jackets again to be shut out in two of five games, especially again for a team who's made every change uh, they felt was necessary from their head coach to, you know, getting that defenseman Tyson Berry. That deal didn't work out. We saw what Nazem Kadri did um, in the playoffs for the Colorado Avalanche. So, um, you know, that's the big thing for me is, is um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty Again, Lou Lamarillo has done some great things with the Islanders. But let's not forget, he didn't do some great things at times with the Maple Leafs, including the Nikita Zaitsev contract, right? And he really pigeonholed there. Um, and the fact that they had to go out and, and trade him to Ottawa in that deal. So, um, I don't know. To, to answer your question, it's a really good one. Um, if Lamarillo's here, I just don't know how different this team would look because from a – from a negotiation standpoint, uh, standpoint I, I don't care who's negotiating. It was going to be difficult when you look at what what type of numbers Matthews and Marner specifically posted in their their early time in the league. The, how how were you not paying these guys? Was my question. Got any uh, last questions over there, Anthony? Um. Yeah. So, what's your beef with Islanders Nation, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not really a beef. So, like, I get asked this question a lot. I- I'm just a master troller. And, um, you know, Kevin Conley of Entourage did an interview with ESPN the other day and sort of outed me. Didn't mention my name, but he outed me. And pretty much, I know I get a rise. You know, it's like anything in life. You know, when you get a rise out of something, you, go- you keep going back to that well, especially, um, you know, social media. I know how social media works. It's all about impressions, engagements. And when that continues to filter in, why not go back to the well? Um, this started a couple years back. Um, you know, I, I know some people close to John Tavares. I got an inkling that, hey, he would be interested if, if he got to free agency and the Maple Leafs were there. And it was January, and I started to put this out on my show on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Started to tweet about it a bit, and that's when they started to hop on because we were getting around the trade deadline, and Islanders fans were torn. Should we trade him? Should we keep him? ended up keeping him because they felt they were reaffirmed that he was staying with the organization or at least was really heavily thinking about staying. So it got to the offseason. It got to June. He made his decision. Uh, I continued to troll away there and said, hey, this is the schedule came out. I said, hey, John Tavares is returning to, to the island on this date. And then it got to uh, free agency. He made his decision. And then I believe on July 2nd of that year, I had John Tavares actually on my show and on, on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. And I put out a tweet that just triggered the hell out of Isles Nation saying, hey, Isles fans, you know who hashtag Baltimore, Voldemort is guesting on my show. Um, <laughs> and that's when they completely lost their minds. So it's a lot of fun. I think if you ask Islanders fans, it's actually had an opportunity for me to connect with a lot of cool people, including, again, Kevin Conley, my buddy Mike Carver. Uh, Opal uh, over with LC podcast, Brian Compton, um, you know, Arthur Staple, they all joke about it now because they know I'm just doing my thing and I'm just trolling away. And I've said it time and time again on radio hits and wherever I've been that I really respect the organization. I like the style they play year after year. They're a competitive bunch. We're seeing it again this year, but, uh, uh, trolling ain't easy. So I'll continue to do so. And they lose their mind, but I'm like, they're perfect. Like love, love, hate relationship, uh, type media member. <laughs> well, I think that's all for us today, Nick. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Have a great day. 
All right, everybody, that was Nick Alberga in our continuing series of guests. And uh, now it's time to switch back to some Flyers talk with our favorite player of all time, Mr. James Van Riemsdyk. Just kidding, I can't stand James Van Riemsdyk. But uh, <laughs> there was a tweet this morning. It was one of the first things I saw when I woke up and just sent me into a rage immediately. Uh, it was our... Let's see if I can pull up that tweet here. I had it up and then checked my mentions, and I got to pull it up again. Something about oh, there it was <clears throat> via pliers fox uh, <laughs> pliers fox sauce is more or less Freudian slip there, I guess. But uh, uh, I find it funny that the Flyers fans saying they need Line A also do not like JVR and call him lazy and horrible defensively. JVR looks like a sulky winner compared to Line A. Line A last year's 58 goals. JVR last year's 48 goals. First and foremost, I don't think anybody's ever said JVR is bad defensively. Nope. He's perfectly fine defensively. I don't know if lazy is the right word either. I just think he's bad at what he does. But uh, that, that, that... The way he worded that reminds me exactly of the people that say Alex Ovechkin isn't good because he doesn't play defense. Like, is that what they're insinuating Patrick Laine is going to be now? Who cares that he scores 30-plus goals a year? If he can't play defense, who needs him? Put in JVR, who just stands around for, you know, 82 games a year doing nothing. We need that neck front presence, Daniel. Well, like, I, I had an exchange with him, and I if he was trying to say that line a would have haters here then i wouldn't necessarily disagree because i remember when danny briere was scoring 70 points a year and being a playoff like hero people were still bitching about him that he wasn't like winning faceoffs or on the penalty kill so like i fully believe that a guy like patrick line would get haters because at the end of the day there still are people who value you know, moral victories and good defensive play and puck possession over guys who just get raw results. That being said, I don't know what the point of the tweet was because to me, he claimed that he was just pointing out facts and pointing out that people get haters, but you, you cited both of their goals over the last two years. So the way I took it is you basically saying that they're equal, if not JVR is a better player. And I don't know how anyone who can look at both players objectively and say, yeah, we can live with both of their miscomings equally. You know, Patrick Line is nine years long, younger, has scored 36 or more goals twice, which is the career high for JVR that he's only got to once. I just don't even understand why you would tweet that. Like, it, it unless the only point of it was to point out that some people would irrationally hate Patrick Lyon, which is obvious because there's irrationality everywhere on Flyers Twitter, I don't get what his goal was when putting out this tweet. That seems to be a common thread with a lot of his tweets. Jim talked about this during the playoffs. I, I believe the same guy put up a tweet saying, like, Giroux and Nate Thompson had the same amount of ice time. And Jim pointed out that, well, that's not Nate Thompson's fault. And he goes, yeah, I know, because Jim's trying to get him. Sorry, everybody, we had a bit of an audio glitch there. My apologies. And uh, anyway, he, he brought up a tweet in the playoffs about Claude Giroux and Nate Thompson getting the same ice time. And Jim was hounding him because 
He's like, well, I'm not blaming Nate Thompson, but he never blamed Elaine Vigneault, which was Jim's point the whole time is, say his name, you know? <laughs> Tell me that it was Elaine Vigneault's fault, not Nate Thompson. This feels very much the same, you know, where he's trying to get a point across about people not liking JVR defensively, but he's using Patrick Line defensive, you know, issues against it. I don't even know what the fuck he's trying here, but I don't understand the point of this tweet, but Patrick Line's 22... He's good for at least 30 goals a year. You can, you know, hit 40 once, 36 twice. JVR's 31, whose point totals have dipped for four straight years now. And he's not getting any younger, and he's certainly not getting any better. So, I just don't, I don't get it. I'm pretty sure Liney would be a guy that the analytic side of Flyers Twitter would hate, which means he's probably a good player. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know, that tweet just, that was one of the first things I saw when I woke up this morning. Got up late, my day off. Went to Wawa, got some lunch, came back, opened Twitter and saw that and was ready to have a meltdown. So, uh, I don't know. But that, that's, it's just, God, I hate that guy. More than pretty much anybody on Flyers Twitter, actually. Well, just to circle back on the Nate Thompson thing a bit, like, I, and I like that Jim and yourself were kind of saying, well, why are you blaming the player when it's AV who's deploying him? And you know what? I'm not going to sit here and say that deploying Nate Thompson 14 minutes and night against Matthew Barzell and Nick Suzuki was an ideal situation but like I actually because what was the the what was the other option deploying Katori or Kevin Hayes head-to-head against those guys right Dan yeah I more would... or less Derek so, like, Grant. <laughs> so I actually and I and I believe I brought this up before the Flyers weren't scoring by just completely letting those offensive guys be deployed in favorable matchups, like getting deployed against, let's say, J.G. Pajo or Casey Zizekas or Brock Nelson, as opposed to going head-to-head and having to worry about Matthew Barzell. So you saw how little they scored and generated in that, in that type of deployment. Would it have been better against Matthew Barzell? Because... Look, I'm I'm not going to sit here and say that the Flyers were excellent defending in that series because a lot of times they were getting, you know, dangled and circled by the Islanders. But I really don't think the outcome would have been better or I would argue that it would have been worse if you were doing the traditional, you know, head-on-head Katori versus Barzil and having Thompson go up against the fourth line. I think AV just said, I got to work with what I have here. The top guys are barely scoring against the bottom six of the opposing team. So I have to just try and keep deploying them in that way. Because if I make them go head to head with the Islanders best players, we'll never score again. And look, I I just that and I I'm pretty sure Charlie O'Connor like had a thread citing all of this. And Nate Thompson didn't actually do that bad considering that he was a fourth liner going up against Matthew Barzell, who was one of the breakout stars of these playoffs. But look, I I mean, it wasn't ideal, and I'm not saying that I would want to go in to next season or next year's playoffs with a Nate Thompson-type player as the premier shutdown player. But given what the Flyers had, I don't know what else you could have expected them to do. And even if you would have expected them to do something else, if it would have even been better. Yeah, I... uh... I just think Nate Thompson, I don't know how he always end, went wind back up on this guy, but he just, he did everything in his power correctly during the playoffs. Yes, he was overused, and yes, he was used in bad situations. 
you know, when they were down by a goal early in the third period and you put Nate Thompson out there when you should be focused on scoring. Or right after a goal in the third period, which is fucking, I hate that more than anything, but fuck. There are ways to use him. If they just reduced his ice time by like three or four minutes a night, nobody would have even noticed. (laughs) Nobody would have had a bad thing to say about him. But because he was seeing so much ice time in a series where scoring goals was at a premium, you know, that's kind of where this all came from. And I don't know. I I, I don't know if he comes back. I don't know if anybody comes back. If you want to touch upon some of these uh, UFA RFAs here. Um, Thompson, Grant, Pitlick, Braun, and Elliott are unrestricted. Uh, Myers, Haig, Obi Kubel, and Patrick are restricted. Well, I think Myers and Obi Kubel 100% come back. Yes. Um, like, I think that's pretty much a stamp, slam dunk. Haig, I, I feel like them re-signing Friedman makes me lean more towards no. Because even though I have no problem with Robert Haig, I still think that you could maybe find someone better to play on that third line. And maybe you want to leave the door open for a Cam York type of player to maybe break out. I mean, after hearing what Mark Seidel said last week, I wouldn't throw that completely off the table. Um, So, Haig, I I think it'll come down to the dollar value because he made, what, 1.1 this past year? Something like that? Yes. So, like, unless he's coming back for the exact same, I really can't see them bringing him back. Uh, Justin Braun, I would have said almost definitely before the playoffs, but I think after the playoffs, you you saw that they could stand to upgrade in that position. And I believe Fletcher cited the fact that they do want some defensive depth. And I think maybe a puck-moving type guy who could play on the power play would stand to benefit the Flyers, like, Honestly, if the price is right, maybe a Tyson Berry. Like, I know he isn't a traditional, like, defensive defenseman. It's going to help them on the penalty kill. But I think that the Flyers have enough of that. Like, Provorov, Niskanen, I think Myers really grew throughout the season. Even Sanheim. Like, I think that on that bottom pair, they could stand to get a guy who could maybe generate some more offense, give them what Shane Goss' year was not. So, like... Maybe you re-sign Hag for $1 million, bring in Tyson Barry. Like, I, I, I'm not really sure, but I, I think they're going to make a move and an upgrade in some capacity on that back end, and I don't think it's going to involve Justin Braun. And to Nick's point, I think he's going to have a lot of options who will be able and willing to pay him more money than the Flyers will. Up front, I don't think Grant or Thompson will be back. I think that, uh, well, maybe Thompson on a cheap, like, one-year, like, 750,000 deal, but I, I really don't see it. I think Connor Bunneman, that fourth line center spot is his to lose. I really liked what I saw from him. I already said, I think Aubrey Kubel is coming back. Look, I really like Tyler Pitlick, but I, I don't see a way to justify bringing him back because the Flyers need to add offense. And Tyler Pitlick, for more times than not, was that third line right wing. And while I like him and I think he is just about as good a fourth liner you can get, I think Aubrey Kubel brings pretty much the same type of game and a bit more offense than Pitlick does. And I think you don't want to tie up a spot in Pitlick when you want to maybe add a goal-scoring winger. And like we've talked about on past shows, the Flyers have a lot of prospects who can tag in in bottom six roles on the wing. So... 
Look, I, I really think that aside from Abe Kubel and Phil Myers, there's a lot of guys that maybe won't be brought back. Uh, the Nolan Patrick thing, I really don't know what to make of it. Like, I could see them trading his rights to Winnipeg, seeing as he's from Manitoba, and maybe he would want to come back to play for a hometown team. But if the Flyers do keep him, I think it would just be a qualifying offer. Like, I can't imagine he has too much negotiating power. So he's a real wild card. But besides Myers and Abe Kubel, I don't think anything is a definite. I think Pitlick becomes disposable because you have Abe Kubel. They're essentially the same player. I think uh, Albi Kubel has a bit more offensive upside, can you know be the more dominant of the two players when they're on. Thompson, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back just because of how favorite he was, but I'm also not convinced he comes back either. Same goes for Robert Haig. I I would not be conv- uh, would be shocked. Or I would not be shocked rather if he comes back, or if he leaves. And and I think that pretty much paints the picture for the entire team at this point. I feel like. Fletcher can just re-sign everybody that's already here and roll out this exact same team next season, and I wouldn't be surprised. Or he could let all these people go out, go out and get Domi and Line a and bring them in and change something up and make a big move, and I wouldn't be surprised at that either. You know, I think this franchise is really kind of at a point of, of I don't say no return, but a, a turning point. You know, it's time to kind of put up or shut up. And the flat cap sucks, your lack of legitimate trade bait sucks but you know now's the kind of time to capitalize on the momentum this team has and and kind of take them to the next level I think you could roll out this exact same team next year and you would have very similar results hopefully without a complete collapse in the playoffs but you know there's enough room for growth here that there's no reason to not make a couple things happen you know we talked about the age of your top guys and Drew Couturier and Jake Voracek you know they ain't getting any younger and and trying to capitalize and pull whatever you can out of Claude Drew and the limited time he's got as a top six forward left you know you really got to make it count so I I genuinely don't know what they do this year you know does Shane Goss's bear come back do they find a way to dump JVR do they you know there's just so many what-ifs right now that I don't think anything in the upcoming three or four months is going to really surprise me yeah, and, and judging from Fletcher's comments, it seems like he's going to focus on, like, bolstering the depth. Yes. Like, I, I think the top six next year isn't going to include Giroux, and that's not me saying I think they're going to trade him. I think that they're just going to go in with the assumption of him being a third-line player. Like, I think your top line is going to be Oscar Lindblom, Sean Couturier, and Jakob Voracek, and then you're going to have Joel Farabee with Kevin Hayes and Travis Konechny. And this is assuming they don't make a big swing for the fence trade like Johnny Gaudreau or Patrick Laine or what have you. I think I I really do believe that Scott Lawton is going to be traded because he is one of the few guys that is expendable on this roster that has legitimate value. Uh, I truly believe that a lot of teams would line up for Scott Lawton. He comes in a good cap number. I think he's at 2.2, something like that. Lawton is Um, at 2.3. 2.3. 2.3. And and I we've talked about before, like, I like Scott Lawton. I think he's a middle six winger or a bottom line center. Uh, very versatile, but I he's kind of become like a Swiss Army knife for the Flyers. But at the same time, they, they don't need another middle six winger. They don't need a bottom line center. They need a legitimate goal scoring winger or a legitimate third line center. And I don't think he's either. 
They already have a rather expensive fourth line player in Michael Roffel, who I think is very valuable to this team because he truly is a Swiss Army knife and can go anywhere. And I just, I don't see a fit for Scott Law. And I know that people like him. I like him too. And that's almost why I'm saying that he will be traded because he is a very good player that has value. And I don't think he's going to be back. I think they're going to find a way to part with JVR. So I think that third line next year is where you're going to see a very big difference. Like, you're going to have Claude Giroux on the left wing and then a new center and a new right wing. Like, I don't think that you're going to see a lot in a pit like come back. Like, I don't know if it's a Max Domi and insert, like, maybe uh, I'm just throwing a player out there, but like a Tyler Toffoli, something like to that effect. Because I, I do believe that Fletcher had it right that they do need to bolster that depth because even when the Flyers were rolling, I don't think a third line of JVR, Grant, and Pitlick was exactly a recipe for success, even when they had a couple of hot games in early month, uh, early March before the season went on pause. But I would really look toward that third line because I think the top six is set. I think your bottom line is pretty much set with Raffle, Bonneman, and Albay Kubel. That would be my best bet for the fourth line next year, at least to start. But I think Giroux with two newcomers is going to make up that third line. Give me a third line of Giroux, Domi, and Frost immediately. Oh, that would be great. I would, that would. I, I could deal with that. <laughs> yeah. But... I, I think if you if you bring in a Max Domi, a lot changes on this team. Yes, I, I would agree. I had him in my uh, top five crazy trade scenarios as a target that they should be after because I uh, I think he checks a lot of boxes of what the doctor ordered for this team. A third-line center who can score and be physical. All three things that they were fucking missing this season. So, <laughs> they could use somebody like him. But yeah, Lawton, I think Lawton gets dealt. And I don't want him to leave. I've always liked Scott Lawton, uh, even back in the day when I had no reason to. Yeah, But there's just no room for him. He just, he can show flashes, you know, when he was with Hayes and, and TK or Hayes and Voracek on the second line left wing. He looked great from time to time, but then the playoffs came around and he looked totally overwhelmed. And then they moved him back to 3C, which was a bad idea, because he's just, he's not very good at center. And, you know, with Lindblom back, and, I mean, for the time being, I'm just going to assume they're not going to move JVR, just because I would love it if they did, but I'm not convinced they do. So, assuming Lindblom comes back and JVR is still here, you know, your third line left wing is tied up, one way or the other. So there's no room for him over there, and... Uh, like we said, whether Patrick defies all odds and comes back, or Frost makes the jump, or they go out and get a Domi, you, you know, there's not a lot of room for you at C anymore either. You, know, you can't play your, your 3C or 4C. So I just don't really see a spot for Scott Lawton, and especially if they start making moves to bring in, you know, uh, some depth players here. I just don't see a way he comes back, so I think he may be the most realistic trade ship they have right now. Because it's like you said, it's he's one of the few players that is expendable that isn't a complete waste of garbage. Yes. Like, like JVR's expendable, Shane Goss' is expendable, and you can make the case that Nolan Patrick's, Patrick is expendable because of Morgan Frost, but all of these guys, they have no trade value. That like, was the what one are you gonna, thing I learned when I wrote the, the Top 5 Crazy Trade Scenarios, TSN Top 20 list, pick out five names that sound cool that could yeah, for the flyers and i pulled up their their, their roster stats and, and cap friendly and i look around and it's like 
There's not a lot of value here. <laughs> you know, they're realistically, they're not going to move Katoria or Zeru. Then you got Voracek, Hayes, and JVR, which are all making obscene amounts of money. You're not going to move Lindblom because you just came back from freaking cancer. You can't throw him, you know, uh, off the ship already. That leaves you with your depth guys in Lawton, Raffle, Farabee, and Abi Kubel, and Travis Konechny. You know, like, Konechny may be your best forward piece to a trade, but, you know, I don't think you're going to prime away that easy. And same goes for defense. You know, Provorov's not going anywhere. Niskanen's contract probably won't be easy to move in this economy. You got Gostas Barrett, who we would all like to see gone, but again, probably not the easiest thing to do. Braun's gone, Myers is sticking around for the long haul, and Haig may not come back. So that leaves you with Sandheim as the most valuable piece you got. You know, there's just there's just not a lot of options here. You know, at least when we were talking with Nick and Toronto, they've got options to make moves if they really want to. Whereas the Flyers do kind of have their hands tied in quite a way as far as making these big impact trades go. Well, when hearing Nick talk about the Leafs, did you not feel like the Leafs lack what the Flyers have and vice versa? Like, exactly? Leafs have the big stars and no depth, and the Flyers have more depth than they know what to do with, but no big stars. That's it. And and I liked how he brought up, you know, how Niskanen and Braun would have been exactly what the doctor ordered. And I fully expect Justin Braun to be a Toronto Maple Leaf next season. I think they were the runner-up, and the reason why the Flyers paid the dreaded second and third round pick to get him but look i i just i i look at this team and it's it's a good team it's not a bad team but i i don't know what you can get without gutting a big part yeah of the core and that's the problem like if you're if you want to go get a patrick line eh? Like, you are saying goodbye to Joel Farabee 100%. He's gone. I don't know if there's a deal that fits because I think that they really want a right shot D, if that's the case. But, I mean, with what the Flyers have, I mean, it would have to, for a guy like Line, it would have to be, like, Lawton, Frost, and Farabee for Line and maybe a depth winger type of thing, like, and look, I would do that deal. I'm just not sure if the Flyers want to give up on their two youngest forwards with the most with the most promise. But look, I think bringing in like a Domi would be a very good start. But then again, you're still banking on Konechny to sustain his regular season play into the playoffs. Playoffs. Voracek to come back with the same level he had post Christmas. For Farabee to take that next step, for Limblom to, you know, continue off of what he did before he went out with cancer. Like, there still are a little, a lot of ifs. Sure, bolstering the depths would be awesome with a Max Domi, and it would certainly help. But you still are leaving a lot of question marks in the top half of the lineup, which that's one thing that scares me. That, sure, bring in a legit 3C and potentially a legit third line winger to help out Giroux on that third line but again you're asking a lot from guys who didn't exactly prove it this season the uh I had the Travisies Sanheim and Konechny for line A in that piece I think that would be Sanheim and Konechny yeah yeah I mean that that could work and I like it, it would just be like, well, what's your whole take on Travis Konechny? I know Jim has been really up ag- like against him, but obviously we both saw the heat map saying that he's an offensive machine. Oh, but God. Ob- 
<laughs> but objectively, like, what's your take on Konechny? Where do you think he is long term? What do you think of his contract? Like, give me the whole nine yards on your opinion on Konechny. I think Travis Konechny is a good middle six right wing. And they've kind of been deploying him as the top line right wing for much of the past two seasons. You know, I think he essentially split that role 50-50 with Voracek this year, on and off. I just, I don't think he's a true goal scorer. I think he's a guy that is good at finishing when he has those good line mates. You know, when he was with Giroux and, and Couturier, or when he was on the second line, when he tandemed with uh, Hayes and Lawton. Like, they were getting it done. But I just don't think he's a guy that can drive this team by himself. And, you know, listen, three straight 24-goal seasons is nothing to put your nose at bad. You know, 61 points is here by far his career high. And they had, what, a dozen games left? You know, he probably would have easily broken his career high in goals as well. But I don't know. I, I just don't think he's the guy to, to build your team right. I think he's a good complimentary guy. He's got, what, five years left at 5.5 mil. That's fine. Uh, you know, a little high. But we brought it up on, on the Angry Negative show. Brock Besser's name is floated around. You know, if you offer comes down to Brock Besser for cap reasons for Vancouver, and you do connect me for Besser, I'm taking that trade all day. You know, because Besser's ceiling is higher. You know, he can produce more than Konechny. And and it's not necessarily not going to and I feel this way about quite a few of these players. Uh, when we talk about Sean Couturier, you know, where it's like, I have to bury them, but not, you know, entirely, because there's still something. It just... I think Konechny just gets in a little over his head on this team. And I think the fan base puts a little too much weight in his shoulders as far as what he can carry. And, and you know, because he can chirp and he says funny things, makes funny faces. You know, people love him more than his play is valued, you know. And and I just, I just, I just think that's what he is. If he can be down in that, you know, middle six right wing where he can chip in offense but also contribute physically and be you know that kind of player I think that's where he is I just don't think he's your top line right wing long term yeah I think people kind of got infatuated with him being the top line right wing when he had that run with Giroux and Couturier in 17-18 it kind of spilled into 18-19 but I think what people forget a lot was do you remember how good Giroux was playing in those two years like yeah that's like people leave out that detail that once Giroux fell off a cliff offensively, Konechny's offensive game somewhat did as well. Like, yeah, he had a hot start to the season when he gelled with Katori and Limblom right, right out of the gate. But like when you had Giroux playing the way he did, you were going to get a lot of points. And hey, that's that's not a slight on Konechny. But I think what happened with him is what happened with a lot of these players is that we saw the years go by of the high-end talent wither away. You know, Simmons left. Giroux's game slowly declined. Voracek has ramped it up again, but, I mean, he is oftentimes hit or miss. But for the most part, he was excellent this season. So they latched on to, like, this young prospect in Konechny who falls into the do-no-wrong category, and he very much does. And they anointed him with unrealistic expectations that we've seen with Frost, that we've seen with Sanheim, to an extent what we've seen with Sean Couturier. And therefore, you're expecting Travis Konechny to play a Mitch Marner type of role. And then when he doesn't, you're mad. 
Well, I mean, if you look at now, I'm, he had an awful playoffs by all accounts. He wasn't good. But at the same time, who was? <laughs> like, like Voracek, Hayes, those are the two. The old, yeah, those are the only two forwards that I could say played the way that they should have. Yes. Because even Sean Couturier, another guy who falls in the do-no-wrong category. Like, I'm sorry, offensively, he was dog shit. He was. He pissed me off to no end. And I'm not, I've always had to like, not a beef because we don't know each other, but I've always kind of like got angry watching the way Sean Couturier plays because he's like, he's so brilliant in every area of the ice. But then like when he gets into like an offensive scoring position, it's almost like he glitches. Do you kind of know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And you're and you're just like fuck. If he just knew how to like go bar down, this guy would be one of the most unstoppable unstoppable centers in the league. Yep. So so like, look, I'm not gonna beat the drum that you have to trade Travis Konechny, but I'm because I do think that for the most part, five and a half million dollars for a solid second line right wing is fine. And more times than night, he more times than not, he brings that type of game. But this whole thought process that he's a legit top line player and he's going to be an all-star every year that he was this year. And he's going to take, and he's ahead of Voracek on the depth chart. That's not true. That's simply not true. And if Jake Voracek did not play the way he did in the back half of the season before the pause from December, a lot more people would have been pointing out the way that Travis Konechny was playing poorly. Yeah. And, and I mean, he led the team in goals and points, but he did so kind of by default. You know, the second place runner up was Katrina with twenty two fifty nine. You know, it just when the whole team was failing to score all season, this was not just a playoff issue, this was an all season thing. You know, your top scorer has sixty one points. That's kind of pathetic. You know, if this team was a couple years back when you know, Giroux hit 90 and Couturier's in the upper 70s, lower 80s, and Voracek is having a normal, you know, 65, 70-point season. Like, it wouldn't be nearly as impressive. And I just think with this team as anemic offensively as they come across, it's just he just kind of rose above the crowd this year by default. In a normal year, he wouldn't be that way. But, yeah, he's one of the guys that falls into the do-no-wrong category, which which is all the players that do a whole lot of wrong, actually. Uh, ironically enough, but I don't know. I, I just, and that, that's one of the roles that they don't necessarily have anybody that is going to challenge him for that top line right wing anytime soon. I, I think Voracek, when he's on, he's on. You know, we saw it from Christmas till the end of the playoffs. I mean, he just played out of his mind good hockey from then on. And, uh, you know, if he s- slows down for good, I think you're going to realize, and much like we see with Claude Giroux, you know, once these guys start slowing down, I think you're going to realize just how much they relied on him. And uh, I'm not sure if this wave of kids is going to be enough to pick up where they left off, you know, carry the baton further. And I think that's going to be a crashing reality that this fan base and this team is going to face over the next couple of years. Is as these guys get older, I think you're going to realize that these these young guys that we've been drafting and sitting on for past four five six years aren't as good as everybody thought they were going to be well when you look at the top six that i just mapped out of limblom couturier voracek faraby hayes connectney that i'm expecting to go into next season with aside from maybe morgan frost is there anyone in their system that could challenge any of those six players for a top six role 
No. And that's the problem, is that you are really putting all your eggs in one basket if you go in with no legitimate offensive additions into next season. It could work. Like, hey, maybe the stars align and Faraby really catches fire and finds his legs in his sophomore year and Limblom picks up right where he left off last December and Konechny gets his game back on track. Voracek sustains the same level of play that he did in the back half of the season and everything's great. But at the same time, if there's one hiccup, if there's one injury, if one player has a down season or God forbid two or three, you're going to run into a lot of the same problems as you did last year. Now, obviously, if you bring in a Max Domi into the fold or a Tyler Toffoli type of player into the fold or even Claude Giroux in a third line, you could you have some more wiggle room that you can kind of adjust players up and down the lineup. But again, it's like if an injury happens and you move Giroux up the lineup, maybe he's not playing the same way, you know. So I don't know. It's not a bad top six to go in and move forward towards because like I just said this may be your top six for the foreseeable future but again if one of them doesn't work out or slips up it's kind of risky business yeah and and you know Chuck Fletcher was very coy during his press conference about making any moves and and like I said at the beginning they can roll this exact same team player for player out next year and be just fine you know but there's enough doubt and cracks in the foundation here with players getting older and young guys not necessarily being what they could be that it's a risky it's a risky move you know and and listen do they need a line a do they need a a top guy maybe not necessarily you know maybe bringing in domi at 3c and letting frost kind of continue to develop as that own time maybe come up later in the year or, or something along those lines like that may work too but i think you can't get away with making no moves i think they got to do something and it's got to be a relatively sizable move you know we saw what the the cop-out nate thompson Derek grant editions of the trade deadline did a whole lot of nothing you know and you trade a couple mid-round picks and a prospect that never had any shot of making the nhl and crocs carlo kyle chris colo i believe was his name um you got a couple depth guys and they held on they had some highs and lows but for the most part they're not making any impacts you know, you're gonna find that guy that can be the spark plug, and whether that's somebody like Max Domi or not, or, or something along those lines, somebody has to come in and and really help this team. And especially if they're in this win by committee state without any stars to carry them, you know, you really need that depth to be as good as it can be. And you know, as you mentioned, if Lindblom can come back to his you know pre-diagnosis form, and Faraby, who I really enjoyed watching the playoffs, to my has surprise. To I, uh, I, you know, we talked about it before. We were kind of hesitant putting him in the lineup, but I think he rose to the occasion and looked great. You know, if he can step up and especially the front, uh, the the front role and the power play there, you know, that net front presence, take that role and do something out of him. Kind of find his niche that makes him something, so he's not just playing up and down the lineup like he was last year. You know, there were nights where he was on the fourth line playing nine minutes and on the top line playing, you know, nineteen minutes. So. You know, if Ami Kubel can come up and, and, and find some of that, you know, pre, uh, pre-COVID form. You know, there's so many options here, but I, I do think they need some kind of help from the outside to really, truly make them a Stanley Cup contender next year. Well, looking a bit at the defense, like on that bottom pair, if you're going to, well, first and foremost, do you think Braun is going to come back? I'm not convinced. 
I'm pretty much with you on that boat. I think pre-shutdown, I would have thought he would have come back, but afterwards, I just don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm not convinced. Yeah, and I think it's for numerous reasons, because I do think a team like Toronto will pay something over market value for him. But if you're bringing, if you're moving Braun out, would you bring in a similar type of stay-at-home presence on that third pairing to replace him? Or would you lean, like, would you take a shot at a puck mover like Tyson Berry? Like, what would you replace him with, and specifically more who? This is where I'm fascinated with his defense, because there's so many plays they can make. You know, you can let Hagbron walk and trade Gossespear, and you still have Myers, Frieden, and Moran floating around. You know, and you can just roll with those guys. Or... You know, let Braun walk and and roll the top six and keep Haig and and you know Spears is still here unfortunately and then Friedman's your seventh or you know there's so many different options and it really depends on the path they take. I'm pretty sure Justin Braun doesn't come back. I think the flat cap uh, doesn't help his scenario as well as uh, coming back either. I still think he can probably get you know three and a half plus mil on the open market. I think he was what three point eight this year. Haig, it really I think. The player they bring in depends on whether they bring Haig back or not. If you want somebody, if they're still hell bent on trying Shane Gossespear and giving him one more chance to add on to his 25 pass chances he's already had, maybe they look for a player similar to Haig or, or, you know, somebody that can play that two way role that gives Gossespear some freedom and then use him specifically in the power play. There's just so many options on that blue line that I, I think it's hard right now to pinpoint until something happens, until one of these dominoes falls, whether we get word that they're not bringing Haig back or Justin Braun's hitting UFA or they trade Ghost or, or they re sign Haig, something along those lines. It's kind of hard to tell what direction they're going to take. Yeah, well, the options are certainly endless and I, I think a lot just relies on what happens with Goss beer yeah. because to your point if they can't move him there wouldn't be a point in taking a run at a Tyson Berry type guy so uh, I don't know like I mean a name that kind of intrigues me is Brandon Montour who's an RFA from Buffalo he's a guy that I would really like to take a chance on he had a lot of promise coming up in the Anaheim system and then what do you know? He went to Buffalo and his career died. So <laughs> I, w- I would like to Shocking. see what would happen. Yeah, I, I would like to see them take a run on him because he's a type of guy that I think he's kind of like middle of the road, can play power play, but also good in his own end. Um, but another position that I'm kind of intrigued with is the goaltending because obviously they have one more year with Carter Hart on his entry-level contract. Brian Elliott is an R as a UFA rather. Yes. Do you think they re-sign Elliott or do you think they dip their toes into the goalie market? Because I like I think ideally the best guy for the job would be Thomas Grice. Yes. But I think that's gonna come with maybe close to three million dollars with at least two or three years. Not sure you want to pay a backup goaltender that when you're aware oh year away from having to dish out the Brinks trucks for Carter Hart. I've also heard one analyst on Toronto radio suggest Marc Andre Fleury to Ooh. bring in. <laughs> that's I a, think that's that an expensive uh, hole to get yourself in, though. Seven yeah, million dollars for two more years. Oh, is it two more years? Yeah, this season and next. Yeah. Okay. So wait. So it would expire in twenty twenty two. Yeah. Okay. And forget that. I thought he he then. Jamie McClendon was off. It was actually Jamie McClendon, the old backup goaltender for the 
for the Calgary Flames who said that. So forget Marc-Andre Fleury, but where do you think they go with it, with the backup scenario? I'm pretty sure Elliot comes back. I He's a perfectly fine backup goalie. I, he's not getting any younger. His play certainly dipped this year. But they used him in a role this year where he was essentially tasked with taking the bullet for Carter Hart. You know, specifically on the road, on the West Coast trip after Lindblom's diagnosis when they just shit the bed for, you know, a month and a half there. He was there specifically so Carter Hart didn't have to face his struggles head on. And as Hart continues to grow and get better and continue to assert his dominance on in, in the blue uh, the blue paint, he's the guy. You know, provided there are no injuries, and which is hard to say because he's already been injured twice in his career, once per season. But, you know, he's the guy, and he's not going anywhere. And as he continues to get better, he's theoretically going to be the guy. You know, I don't know if they're going to start handing him, you know, 60, 65 games yet. I doubt it. But he's the guy. And theoretically, if he can come in and play a little better on the road and just overall better, then Elliott plays even less minutes than he played this year. So it's not the end of the road. I think realistically, the two best backup options on the market were Thomas Grice and Don Hudobin, and both of those two are playing themselves into big contracts, you know, laying themselves in, you know, out of the cheap backup role. So I'm still pretty convinced Elliot comes back unless they, you know, make a move for a backup via trade somewhere, you know, whether it be a, a Marc-Andre Fleury. There's a part of me that loves Fleury as backup just because why the hell not? But at the same time, I believe he's making $7 million for two years and, you know, a couple other guys they've been linked to over the years. I just don't think contractually it's going to work out. So I'm pretty sure it's Brian Elliott who is uh, coming back next year. Yeah, well, you bring up a good points because after Kadobin and Thomas Grice, from at least a goaltending, per- a backup perspective, it's rather, bad. like, would... <laughs> Like, like I, I think someone, I think Isaiah suggested, yeah, or Cam Talbot, Cam Mike Talbot, Smith, Mike Smith, just all these guys that are either old and washed up or, or not very good, and there's just, and that's what I mean. You could go for a Jimmy Howard, but is he a better option than Brian Elliott? I mean, it's a lateral move at absolute best. So that, that's why I think Brian has the inside track. Uh, Elliott has the inside track. He's friends with Carter Hart. They're supposedly really close. He's kind of his mentor. And I think that weighs more than, you know, just a, a on-paper linear move like a Mike Smith or, or you know, Jimmy Howard would be. Yeah, I just, I, I think to your point, like, they shouldn't waste too much time on this. Like, I just hope they don't. And you know what? Like, I do think that Elliot probably won't play as well as he did last season because I know his numbers don't show it. But to your point, he, he was thrust into a pretty difficult role at times with the Flyers. Yeah. But, like, just the way he played, and I feel like, I feel like for the majority, he's been here for, what, three seasons? So, yes. the, when he first got brought in to tandem with Neuverth, like, what an unfortunate position they like, ran with. Like that. Yeah. And Elliot, like, over his track record, you've seen it when he was with Colorado and St. Louis and Calgary. Like, whenever he was, like, the backup playing 40 to 45 games a year... He was about as good as a backup as you could get. I think he was in two all-star games. But every time that he was asked to be the undisputed starter, the go-to guy, he fell flat on his face. I think the last season he was in St. Louis, they ran with him in the playoffs. And in the final round, I believe they lost the, the Sharks in the conference final. He just got embarrassed. 
The following year with Calgary, he was their undisputed starter. He got embarrassed in the in the playoffs. I believe that was the year that um, who was their coach at that time? He pulled him after like two goals. Anyway, I forget who it was, uh, but maybe, maybe Bob Hartley. But I think that what you saw with Elliott is when you limit his starts, he can still be a very competent backup. And now that to your point that Hart's can be playing more games, I don't see unless you pay a big money for a Grice or a Kadobin, if there'd be even a better option on the market. The market next season doesn't look much better either in 2021. Lundqvist, Rask, Rene, Anderson, Bennington, Allen, Dubnik, Ronta, Reimer, Grubauer, Mrazek. I would assume uh, Bennington probably gets re-signed. Anderson is going to get traded and probably be signed somewhere. But, you know, Lundqvist... As much as I would just on a personal level love to have him in Philadelphia, he's making eight and a half million dollars next season. <laughs> so he's not coming in anytime soon. Rask, who knows? He sounds like he may retire after that. Rene's 38 and on a steep decline. You know, Allen's a mess. Dubnik, I'm pretty sure he's going to get bought out. Ronta, maybe? But, you know, I don't know. It really depends. They may even take a, ba- uh, a trade route here and find some kind of backup uh, a little down the line. Or, or, hell, maybe they think, uh, you know, maybe Ustminko will make a big stride this year and feel ready. Or who knows? You know, there's that's another position for the Flyers that long-term is kind of up in the air. Well, uh, you brought up a name, and I'm looking at his contract, that I would look for in a trade. But it is also dependent on the Avalanche going out and upgrading their goaltending. That's Grubauer. Yeah. Because I fully expect them to make a hard run at Jakob Markstrom if he does hit the market. Because I think if you're Joe Sackick and you're looking at your team, you're just like, my God, like we ultimately got done in by our goaltending. That's what happened. And I know that Grubauer was hurt. But I don't know, personally, and, I, and I've been like a Dallas hugger all season long, I don't think Rubauer would have changed much in that series. I think they still would have lost. But if they go out and they sign Jakob Markstrom to, let's say, a seven-year, $7 million contract, they have Pavel Franco signed for two more years at $2 million. You know, maybe they look to move Grubauer. He has one year left at 233 he would be a guy that I would definitely look at if the opportunity presented itself. And obviously it's a big if on whether or not the Avalanche would want to get in on like a Markstrom or a Holtby or such. But I would that would be a name that if the opportunity presented itself, I would definitely look at. Yeah, maybe the uh, best option there eh? as far as a, a backup goes. But yeah, one last thing I want to get your opinion on here because it baffled the fuck out of me last night. Eric Stahl traded to the Buffalo Sabres for Marcus Johansson one for one. Uh, what the hell happened there? It's funny. I reached out to Dave, obviously the editor in chief of uh, TFP about that because, well, from a Buffalo standpoint, I like it. I think that it's obviously an extremely short term fix on their part, but I think that Eric Stahl is a legitimate center, albeit somewhat, I wouldn't say washed up. He's still solid. But I think that after Jack Eichel, they had no natural centers in their lineup. Like Marcus Johansson, by and large, has been a winger for much of his career. And he was playing second line center for a lot of his tenure there or his one year there, rather. 
Um, as Mark Seidel pointed out last week, Casey Middleset has really fallen flat on his face since turning pro. So I think it was just almost like a desperate attempt by the GM Kevin Adams to legitimize their center depth, at least in the top six. I still, I still think there's a lot of questions down the lineup everywhere. But at least for them, I guess the thought process is, well, we have Eric Stahl and maybe Jack Eichel won't think his second line center isn't a complete joke now. So I think that from the Buffalo standpoint, it's kind of a win-win because how much worse could it get? And from the wild, I don't really get it. Like Dave told me it was to get a two-way center and to get a bit younger, I guess. The way Bill Guerin sounded in his quote following the deal, it was almost just like, well, it can't get any worse, so why not try it? (laughs) I don't know if that's really... I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he basically said something along those lines, like nothing's going to change if we don't do anything and that's not an option. Well, okay, well, try your chances with Koivu and Johansson as your one-two center punch. I'm not sure. Um, is Kaprizov a center or is he a winger? I believe he's a winger. So I, I just, that's a team that I, I think they need to rebuild. Yeah, he's listed per, as a per, left wing, right wing. Yeah, so I think the Minnesota Wild really just need to completely rebuild the entire operation there. But it seems like they don't want to. You know, they just locked in Jonas Brodin on a seven-year, $42 million contract. So it seems like they're trying to almost kind of rebuild on the fly and make the most out of the lasting years of Spurgeon, who they re-signed last summer, Matthew Dumba, Brodeen. Uh, their goaltending, well, Stalock kind of took the reins last summer. Like, obviously, they have Erickson Eck and Kaprizov. But, look, I, I don't really know what's going on in Minnesota. I really think that they're long overdue for rebuild at this point. I think after that year where they traded the first-round pick for Martin Hansel, and then they followed it up by giving up Eric Kala and Alex Tuck in expansion. Not a good look for Chuck Fletcher, by the way. But I think... <laughs> I think following that whole horrible five-month stretch in 2017, they really should have just rebuilt the entire thing. Obviously, their first year with Paul Fenton didn't go so well as they fired him. Now Bill Guerin's on the job. He doesn't look to be rebuilding. But, uh, yeah, it's very it's a puzzling trade because it's almost like, what's the point of swapping these players? But at least from Buffalo standpoint, I get it as opposed to Minnesota. I really don't. The wild have always been one of those teams that have kind of just lingered. They've been a bubble team for seemingly ever at this point, but I don't think they ever made it. Yeah. They just kind of exist. And, uh, I don't think they've ever made any legitimate runs at anything lately. And, you know, now that Mika Koivu's going to be 38, Eric Stahl's going to be 36, I believe, 35, 36. Uh, yeah, he's going to be 36 at the end of next month. <laughs> this team's very old. But on the bright side, Parise and Suter only have five years left on their deals. So there you go. They're <laughs> finally on the horizon is ending. But, yeah, I think that team is uh, – they're obviously trying to stay afloat and put as many Band-Aids on their roster as they can. But uh, I think it's time for the – full rebuild of whatever it is they're trying to do in Minnesota. But uh, from a a Buffalo perspective, it's fine. I was kind of angry last night when I found out Eric Stahl got traded and he didn't go to the Flyers. He would have been a solid... Nice little uh, third line there. 
Not to mention he was my favorite non-flyer of all time, behind Vinny LeCavier, but LeCavier played for the Flyers eventually. So he's by default in that uh, favorite player role. So, But let me run by you. Very happy, let me, but uh, no, I'm sad. Let me ask you, would you have traded Lawton one for one for In Saul? a fucking heartbeat, yes. You're going to rattle some feathers there, but That's my look, I, like... I'm I'm looking at the players that they've brought in recently, the Wild, and like Bugstad, Marcus Johansson, like ugh, I don't know, like th- this is a t- Ryan Hartman last summer. It's just Alex Galchenyuk, who's a UFA, Koi, who's a UFA. Like it's just Zuccarello. I just don't <laughs> like. I look at this roster, and the first thing to my mind that comes to my mind is I don't get it. Like I just don't yeah, get. That's a pretty good phrase to describe this here because I don't particularly see any rhyme or reason to any of these players either. Yeah, so hopefully, uh, well, I mean, whenever we think the Flyers are in a bad situation, all... just look at <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're talking about getting past the second round, and here the Minnesota Wild are trying to squeeze something out of Marcus Johansson in 2020, so it could always be worse, I guess, but uh, there is a KHL Twitter has a nice picture of a Kovalchuk, Malkin, his son, and I don't know who that is off the top of my head sitting next to him, just chilling and watching the game. All right. On that note, everybody, we'll wrap up. A bit of a longer episode here, but that's fine. We're not doing a, an overabundance of episode these days, at least for the next few weeks until the draft comes around in October. As I mentioned, episode 199 at the beginning, we'll do something. Uh, for 200 here. Stay tuned for some news on that in the upcoming week or so. We've got to start planning something. Uh, Angry Negative show from yesterday with Jim. And uh, other than that, I think our docket's clear. Anthony, we got anybody coming on next week? Yes. Um, next Thursday, we have Mike Kelly from the NHL Network and the Point Hockey. Very analytic guy. So we're going to tackle that demographic. And I'm going to sure... fit right in. Yeah, and I'm anxious to bring him on because he's about as logical as you can get with analytics. And uh, I'm really excited for that episode. And uh, the following week, we have Jesse Granger. Wait, no, I'm lying. We have Josh Yo, Yohi, Yo, from the Athletic Pittsburgh. So that's going to be fun. Mm, behind enemy lines. Yeah, and Jesse Granger of the Athletic Vegas is going to be the guest following that, just having locked down a date. All right, everybody. So it sounds like our schedule's packed for the next three weeks. So uh, this may be one of the few shows we do between now and then. I don't have a whole lot going on uh, show-wise. Unless there's some breaking news that needs to be addressed, we're still going to do some angry negative shows now and again. But uh, probably going to take a little break here for for the next couple weeks until the draft rolls around and maybe uh, a cup is awarded and draft rolls around and free agency. All that's going to happen very quickly. So uh, once that happens, we'll be back with uh, more coverage as usual. But uh, at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck. And uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? At Adamarco25. All right, everybody. Well, until next time, goodbye and good night. Yeah! Yeah!